All right, guys, surprise, I'm back. Good morning. Uh, if you missed it the first time, good morning. Uh, my name is Kel Casso. I'm the youth pastor here at Austin Oaks Church. Uh, and I'm so excited to be with you today. If you're with us in person, if you're joining us online, thank you for being here. Uh, this is a particularly exciting moment for me because not only am I the youth pastor here, but I actually, this is my home church that I grew up at. I was a kid here. I was a student here in the ministry. Now I'm the student pastor here. And so when Brandon uh, asked me to preach this morning, I was beyond excited to be able to present God's word to you today. Uh, if you've been with us the past few weeks, or if you look at the slide over there, uh, you'll know that the series we've been going through is called Questions That Need Answers. And this may immediately make you think of all the questions that you have for God, but instead what we're doing is we're looking at all the questions that Jesus has for us, for his followers, for the people that he's walking with in his life, and for us you know, here and now. Uh, and I'm excited for this question, this passage in particular, because it not only applies to the world that I live in most of the time, which is, you know, students, teenagers, but it's really important. And it's a, a question that all of us have to face and have to answer at some point in our lives. So to give some brief context for our passage, for our question today, we need to quickly recap one of the major moments in Jesus's earthly ministry, and that's the feeding of the 5,000. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to John chapter 6. If you don't have your Bibles, that's okay, because the verses are going to be on the screen behind me. But whether you're familiar with the story or not, what ends up happening is Jesus has amassed this huge crowd of followers. Thousands of people are following him. And at this moment, Jesus decides, it is now time for me to feed all these people. And I love what he does next. It's one of those hidden moments of humor in the Bible that I just, I really cherish. And so Jesus looks at his disciples. He looks at this crowd of thousands as if he doesn't know what he's about to do. And he goes, how are we gonna feed these people? And the disciples are freaking out. They're like, hey, do you have any food? No, I don't have, do you have any food? No, I, and like Philip's over here, he's trying to do the mental math in his head. He's got his abacus, his abacus out and he's, you know, swiping. And he's like, Jesus, this is gonna take like a half a year's salary, which I don't know how he came to this number or what salary it was, but I appreciate that he's trying to give math to it. And then Andrew, ever the generous giver, is like, uh, there's a little kid over there with five loaves of bread and a couple pieces of fish. And Jesus is like, I'll take it. And he does. He takes the kid's food and he miraculously multiplies it to feed this crowd of thousands. So much so that not only are they full, but they have way more food than they could have possibly started with. And at this point, all these people who are following Jesus are ready to crown him king of Israel and to take on the Roman empire. But Jesus isn't having that. He's like, no, not yet, I'm good, right? And he retreats across this lake and the people follow him. And once they catch back up with him, uh, he gives this, this sermon to them. It's not really like a sermon. It's more of like a conversation, but it's Jesus. So he's teaching a lot, even in his conversations. So in his discourse with his people, he ends up uh, saying a lot of things that are intentionally really confusing, really difficult, and really controversial. And all of the people who are following him get really upset by the things he's saying. And as we read in John chapter six, verse 66 and 67, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Are you going to leave too? Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this ability to present your word today. I pray God that my words would not be my own, but they would be yours, spirit, that you would be here, be in our midst, that you would be moving through me as you present your word, Lord, that you would be in the hearts of the people here, Lord, that they would be able to receive your word. And I pray that you, God, would be glorified more than anything else in this message. God, you're good and we love you. We pray this in your name, amen. So I grew up playing all kinds of sports when I was you know, young. Uh, and we had this philosophy as a family that we didn't quit the things that we started. You know, maybe this is a sports team, maybe this is a project, maybe this is, you know, something at school or, you know, something you're doing at your home. Doesn't matter, right? But the, the point of it is, right, we don't quit the things we start. And this is a pretty easy philosophy to uphold because you just kind of do the things that you start, right? You finish the things you started. But the first time that this was ever challenged was when I, really, when I started playing football. To give some context here, so my older brother used to pick on me all the time and I hated it. There's nothing I could do because if I ever tried to mess back, he would just pick on me more. It's a vicious cycle that any younger sibling knows all too well. 
right? But more importantly, I had been taught, my parents had raised me with this philosophy that we don't hit people, right? We don't solve our problems with physical violence. And if you leave anything with my sermon today, we don't hit people, right? That's a bad thing to do, right? But because of this, my parents began to notice that I had no outlet for my anger. And so they were like, hey, before Kel explodes, let's, you know, maybe get him involved in something healthy, right? Kel likes watching football. Kel enjoys football. Let's get him enrolled in football. So I started football. And this is a fairly well-intentioned plan. It's well thought out for the most part, except for there was this really small detail that, that I hated every single minute of practice. I was miserable. It was the worst. I couldn't stand it. And it really came back to this, you know, guiding principle of our lives that we don't hit people. And I don't know if y'all have ever seen the game of football or played it yourselves, but hitting is kind of a big aspect of the game of football. And so every practice, I'm just getting smacked around. I'm like in the dirt the entire time. I'm leaving with bruises. This is just the worst. I was dreading going to practice each day. It got to the point where, you know, most people, they would put their shoulder pads and their helmets on like when they got to the field, not me. Like every day, I'd get into my mom's minivan wearing my shoulder pads and helmet already because I was afraid someone was going to hit me right? Uh, they're going to come out of nowhere. Uh, and like, I also thought that if I wore my helmet, my mom couldn't see me crying. Uh, and instead what ends up happening is she's in the front seat, just hearing like, <laughs> like sniffling coming from the back seat. I've got my head like tucked low. Like if Sarah McLaughlin came on the radio, people were about to start donating money, right? <laughs> Dreading going to practice every day. And though no one spoke it, though I never said it out loud, though my parents never said it out loud, the question in all of our hearts and in all of our minds was, was, is this the day that I'm going to leave? Is this the day that he's finally going to quit? But unfortunately, you know, or fortunately, like, I just kept going. Every day, I'd put my pads on, I'd go to practice, I'd keep going and keep going and keep going until suddenly I had this epiphany, this light bulb moment where I finally realized something really important and that it's, it's way more fun to be the guy that hits other people than to be the guy that gets hit. And again, if you've ever seen or played the game of football, you're not only encouraged for it, you're not only rewarded for it, you're more successful if you're better at hitting other people than getting hit. And they're like, hey, this is the good time to do that. And I was like, wow, football's great. This is a sport that I could get into. I love this. This is way more fun than I thought it would be. And I'm so glad that I didn't quit because I went on to have, you know, like because I never you know, quit, I was fortunately able to have this illustrious football career where I get to look back and say, hey, I am a guy who once played high school football and one time in college, I, I caught a pass in a C-League intramural game. So like, <laughs> I don't want, look, this isn't about me bragging, I'm sorry. Are you going to leave too? Or to put it another way, to quote a group of philosophers known as The Clash, should I stay or should I go, right? It's the question that I had for myself as a nine-year-old football player, but more importantly, it's the question that Jesus asks his disciples and us by proxy in this passage. We gave a little bit of context to this passage earlier and what's going on, but I wanna dive a little bit deeper into the setting here. So we come upon Jesus at the peak of popularity in his earthly ministry. He has been traveling around for about two years, teaching, performing miracles, and gathering this crowd of thousands, and we come upon him during the Passover festival, that's why he wants to feed everyone, and he's about a year away from his eventual crucifixion. But in this moment, right, this is, this is a miracle known as the feeding of the 5,000, but that's actually somewhat of a misnomer, because that number is only counting the men. So most historians think that number is closer to 10 to 20,000 when you include women, children, and the elderly. And so if you're like me, when you're you know, studying your Bible, when you're reading, you're annotating, you're writing question in the margins, right? It's, a, it's okay, you're allowed to do that, right? If you're like me and you come upon this passage and you read all this, the question that I had for myself was, what in the world happened? How did we go from 15,000 people following Jesus, ready to crown him king of Israel, make him Caesar, to every one of them leaving except for 12, and one of those 12 is Judas, because like purely from like a church growth strategy mindset, that's not ideal, right? So what happened? How did we get here? And while the answer is much more complicated than a single phrase or a sentence, 
I do think we can look at the passage and recognize that our thoughts, our desires, our expectations, our character, the things that happen to us, the things that happen around us, the world that we live in, are often in direct conflict with Jesus. Or to phrase it another way, who we are is in direct conflict with who Jesus is. So at the beginning of this discourse with his followers, all of these people who Jesus had just miraculously fed come and find him on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. But his first response isn't just to like welcome everyone back. He's not like, welcome children. I found another child's lunchbox and I've decided to feed you all, right? That's not his response. Instead, we see in John 6, 26, 27, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. So this group of people who had just seen Jesus miraculously feed 15,000 with enough food to go through the 10 items or less land at HEB, as opposed to being floored by this and just completely taken aback and recognizing Jesus as God, because who else could do something like this besides God? They just want more food. They want Jesus to meet their physical needs. And they're like, hey, feed us, free us from Rome. But Jesus immediately switches things up for them and says, we need to focus more on the eternal than on the temporary. And this first interaction with his followers sets the tone for the next 40 verses, which I'm going to now read, right? Just kidding, right? 40 verses of Jesus and his followers not being on the same page. After Jesus tells them to work for the food that endures to eternal life, they ask, okay, what is the work that we must do? They're thinking in practical, tangible, give me steps A, B, C, that I must do to work to earn eternal life. And Jesus says, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent, right? Jesus is like, hey, the work that you're supposed to do is to believe in me. I'm gonna go do the work. I'm gonna go to the cross. I'm going to die. I'm gonna raise from the dead so that you can have life. Your work is nothing. Your work is just to believe in me. And they immediately respond with, what sign do you do what, that we may see and believe? What work do you perform, Jesus? As if he didn't just take a child's lunch and feed a sold-out Moody Center with it. What work do you do, Jesus? What sign do you perform? Right? They tell him, Moses fed the Israelites with manna from heaven. And Jesus goes, um, actually, technically, my father in heaven gave them that bread. And now he gives you true bread from heaven. And that bread is he who comes from heaven to give life to the world. And once again, they think that he's talking about literal, physical bread. And so they say, give us this bread, not like give us that bread, but like give us that bread that we may eat of it, right? And at this point, Jesus is like, okay, subtlety is lost on these folks. I need to be a little bit more direct. Maybe I need to tell them what it is, right? And he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus tells his followers that he has come down from heaven to do the will of the Father, which is to earn salvation for all of those who would believe in him and to raise them up on the last day. Now, we in modern Christianity in 2023, we have the luxury of looking back on this passage, knowing what's going to happen in the next year of Jesus's life, where we know, yeah, Jesus is going to go to the cross. He's going to die. He's going to be raised from the dead. It's going to be great. We believe in God. Cool. But in this moment, the words of Jesus are incredibly profound and they're incredibly polarizing because what Jesus is doing is declaring himself to be God, to be equal with God and to be God himself in two different ways. First, he's using this phrase, I am, which is a direct reference to the name that God gives to Moses to give to Pharaoh. And it's the name that God uses throughout the Old Testament. So if you're ever reading your Bible and you hear Jesus make phrases like, I am the good shepherd, I am the gate, I am the way, the truth, the life. And you see people get really mad for no reason and they like wanna kill him and start stoning him. It's because Jesus is making himself God by using that phrase. 
And the second thing he's doing is he's saying that he has come down from heaven to bring eternal life and salvation to all those who would believe in him. And do you know who's from heaven? God. And do you know who brings life and salvation? God. And so the people around Jesus are like, this dude is nuts. Like this is the son of Joseph, the carpenter, right? And, and Mary, well, we don't need to get into Mary's backstory. We all know her, right? But he's from Nazareth. We know this guy. We've seen him grow up. We've seen him walking around. How could this guy be God? And Jesus doubles down and he tells them that no one can have eternal life unless the father draws them to him. And then Jesus makes one of the wildest statements in his ministry. He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Okay, did Jesus just tell us to eat his flesh, right? Like, like that's cannibalism, right? I want to make sure we're on the same page here, right? That we all understand each other, right? Is he about to start like hacking his limbs off and multiplying those, feeding the thousands, right? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of a man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Okay, so we did hear him correctly. We're all on the same page, understood, right? So understandably, the Jews following Jesus, the same Jews who had been taught their whole life that eating human flesh and drinking blood is not exactly kosher, they go, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Which is a really polite way of going, this guy's crazy. Everything he says is crazy. We need to get up out of Dodge as soon as possible, right? And once again, as opposed to backing off this line of reasoning, Jesus presses in even further and he tells them, if you're offended by the things I'm saying right now, how are you going to feel when I ascend to my position of glory, the throne that I have held for eternity and that I will rule and lord and judge over the earth for the rest of eternity? Are you still gonna be offended then? And then he drives the final nail into the proverbial coffin by saying, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. Essentially, what Jesus is saying is there is nothing you can do to earn salvation and life for yourself. You have no control over your own destiny, your own life. You can do nothing. You, are not, you cannot be strong enough. You can't be clean enough. You can't be good enough, holy enough, righteous enough. You can't make enough sacrifices. You can't practice the law perfectly enough. You can't do anything to earn life for yourself. In fact, God is the one who gives life. He is the only one that can earn life for you. And that's me. I'm God. I'm going to give you life. And at this point, 14,988 people leave and only 12 people remain standing with him. And he turns to them and he says, do you want to go away as well? When we try to see what drove these people away from Jesus, there doesn't seem to be a single phrase or a single sentence that really does the trick. And as opposed to, it feels more like this is a collection of everything that Jesus has just said, or maybe just who Jesus is himself at this point that is causing this exodus. Jesus, they are, they're wanting their physical needs to be met, and Jesus is trying to communicate eternal, metaphysical, spiritual concepts. Jesus, we're hungry, feed us. Jesus, we've been conquered by Rome and a lot of other nations. Free us and, and make us you know, nationally powerful and autonomous. They keep misunderstanding Jesus, thinking that he's advocating for something he's not and they're missing out on the truth and the point of what he's saying. This dude's telling us to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Are we supposed to be cannibals? No. Jesus is telling them in a year, I'm gonna go to the cross. I'm gonna break my body. I'm gonna spill my blood and I'm going to die so that you could have life. I'm gonna reconcile you to God and you have to abide in me, believe in me, apply my sacrifice to you. And that's how you have life with me forever. They refuse to believe that he is God and it's from heaven because they've seen him walking around. They've seen him grow up. They know that he's a man and how could the fullness of God dwell in human flesh? And they hate being told 
that they aren't in control of their own salvation and destiny, and that instead this Jesus guy is because he is God. What's really interesting in this whole conversation is this, it feels so unlike the Jesus that we like to picture in our mind. It's the portrait of Jesus like holding the lamb, right? It's really soft, he's really gentle. He takes our little tiny hands in his and walks us through and he's like, hey, let me guide you into understanding. Let me help you understand this difficult concept. And instead, it feels like Jesus is intentionally looking at this crowd and saying, this is exactly who I am and exactly what I'm about. Do you still wanna follow me or are you going to leave? And they leave. Are you going to leave too? So I'm in the interesting position of being both youth pastor here as well as former youth of this very church. This is actually a picture of me uh, advertising for my final road rules when I was a graduate. Uh, and it's, it's really interesting. I think this makes me akin to like the missing link of youth ministry, like the Tarzan able to communicate with both worlds, the you know, human adults and the wild teenagers, right? In fact, almost 11 years ago to the day was my own senior Sunday. And you know, we stood on the stage, I was right over there and I actually got the opportunity to share a word with the church. That's a little strong. I shared a couple words. I shared a brief word with the church. And if you don't remember any of that, if you don't remember that I was even up there, hey, that was 11 years ago. It was you know, a tiny, small part of the service. Totally understand, I forgive you, but I will never forget and I'm deeply wounded, right? <laughs> One of the things about having been around students ministry, either as a student or as a leader at this church and elsewhere, for nearly two decades is that I have seen more students than I could count proceed through every phase of youth ministry. I've seen students whose parents raised them in the church and introduced them into students ministry. I've seen students who, who's their friend invited them to a Sunday morning or to an event or something because their own parents don't believe in Jesus. I've seen students who were in students ministry all seven years and students who were only with us for a brief season. I've seen students whose lives were changed, who called out to Jesus for salvation, who got baptized in students' ministry. And I've seen students who experienced incredible difficulties and traumas in their life, and for one reason or another, would leave students' ministry. I've seen students whose faith was incredible, who they were enraptured by Jesus, and they would follow him anywhere. And I've seen students who could not care less about who Jesus is or what he's about. But the truth with every student whether it's a student that I participated with, is a student myself, whether it's a student that I've attempted to lead or pastor, or a student that I've only known from afar, the truth remains that they all have to answer the question, are you gonna follow Jesus, or are you going to leave too? For all of our student volunteer leaders, every parent who's ever had a kid go through the ministry, or maybe has one in the ministry now, to all of our graduates that we're celebrating today because God has brought them to this point in their life, we are all well too aware of the statistics of students who grow up in church, but once they graduate, decide that Christianity is no longer for them. I have friends who I grew up with in this church. I have students who I have tried to lead and pastor and disciple. Students that, again, I've only seen from a distance and known from afar who for one reason or another have decided Jesus is not for me, I don't want anything to do with him, and they walk away from Christianity. But here's the deal. I don't think we can limit this question just to students who at some point in their lives will darken the door of a church because they're not the only ones who have chosen not to follow Jesus. In fact, all of us at some point in our lives have chosen not to follow Jesus. Maybe you're still choosing that. That's the reason that Jesus had to go to the cross in the first place. Because if it weren't for him, who was gonna pay for the sins that we've committed? Who was gonna pay that price? Who was gonna reconcile us with God and bring us into relationship besides him? But even after that happened, the vast majority of all people who have ever lived and will ever live have, will never choose to follow Jesus. And this is the part that us in the church, I think we like to ignore or don't really like to give a lot of credence to, uh, is just much like the Jews who are following Jesus and who would eventually choose to stop following Jesus, there are some very understandable reasons 
why people who are not following Jesus choose to do so. Not necessarily correct, not necessarily right or excusable, but incredibly understandable, incredibly rational. For some, they are unable to reconcile the physical and temporal issues that exist here and now with the spiritual and eternal motivations of Jesus Christ. This can be as simple as people choosing to follow earthly motivations like wealth, sex, power, influence, desire, whatever. Or it can be as complex as someone just, you know, an unexplainable trauma or an incredible difficulty occurring in someone's life that causes them to walk away, to, to take steps away from Jesus because how could this happen? It is wildly difficult for us to think in terms of eternity when we are faced with pressing things here and now. How could I focus on anything else when I'm struggling to pay rent, when I've got a child to feed and I'm just trying to make sure that a meal gets on the table three times a day, right? When, when I just lost my job, when I lost a loved one, when something crazy in my life just happened, when I feel so alone that I don't know what to do, how in the world could I focus on anything else? The things that are happening here and now are so hard to focus on anything else when those things seem impossible to rationalize, to understand, or to manage. For others, they will walk away from a Christ who has been devastatingly misunderstood or misrepresented. The reality is that there are a vast number of people who will walk away from Jesus, not because of who he actually is, what he actually says, or what it means to actually follow him, but because of false beliefs and assumptions about who he is, what he said, and what it looks like to follow him. There are many who will look at the person of Christ, who will read the word of God, who will attend a church service, who will hear from a friend of a friend of a friend whose parents one time came to church, who will read an article or, or, or see something in the media that says something about Jesus that is false, and they will just you know, create false misunderstandings they will, uh, of, of who Jesus is, and they'll say, I don't want that. But there's also a reality that many people will walk away from Jesus, not because of who he is, but because of the words and actions of people who would claim the name of Christ. Now, some of this is because we are imperfect, we are flawed, we are sinful people, and we will never do a great job of reflecting the perfection and the holiness and the beauty of Jesus. But the truth is that there are also people who, when they see people who take the name of Christ and act in very unchrist-like ways, but use it with the name of Christianity, that they will say, if this is what Christians are like, if that is what their Christ is like, I want nothing to do with it. And they will walk away never knowing the true Jesus. And ultimately, there are those who have fundamental disagreements with certain points of faith that prevent them from walking any further with the Lord. For the Jews following Jesus, They could not get on board with the fact that salvation comes from God alone, that they have no control over their own life and destiny. And then in fact, this Jesus guy does because apparently he's God now, right? For other people, the sources and the points of contention with Christian faith are many. It may be the the goodness of God and the problem of evil. It may be the reality that hell exists and there are those who will spend their eternity there. It may be the duality of Jesus because how could the omnipotent, omniscient, immeasurable, infinite fullness of God dwell in human flesh that is none of those things? That doesn't make sense. It could be the Christian stance on controversial issues in pop culture that people can never get on board with. It might be the necessity that Jesus had to die for the forgiveness of our sins. Why couldn't he have just forgiven them? Why did he have to go to the cross? It could be the seeming impossibility of Jesus' resurrection because dead people have this weird tendency of staying dead. I don't want to pretend like I know every reason people walk away from Jesus, nor that I have every answer because I don't. Because the points of faith that people would walk away from, the different theological aspects for different people will become stumbling blocks that will prove impossible for a person to accept. Are you going to leave too? I think we like to imagine that there's nothing that could happen that would ever, you know, cause us to question, like, I'm good, I'm always staying with Jesus. Especially if we've been around the church 
and been around Christian-y things for a long time, but how many of us aren't actually following Jesus, but instead are, are following things like comfort or control, things that are just easy to hide in Christian culture without actually knowing who Jesus is? How many of us simply haven't been confronted with the things that could break us? What if you were presented, confronted with a, uh, an unanswerable question, or at least a, a question that you never could get a satisfying answer to? A question that would just keep playing over and over in your brain. It would ring constantly in your mind. Would it cause you to doubt? Would it cause you to seek Jesus more to, because he is the source of truth? Or would it break you? What if you were to lose a loved one? Maybe your most loved one. Maybe a loved one that would be so unfair and so unjust to lose. Maybe what if something incredibly painful and traumatic happened to you that you would look at it and go, how in the world could something good come from this? What could be the reason behind something like this happening? How could this happen? Would, would you stay faithful? Or would you go, how in the world am I supposed to reconcile this with God? How could I continue following someone who would allow this to happen. Each one of us, every person on this planet, whether we grew up in church or whether we will never darken the doors of one, have to answer the question, will we follow Jesus or will we walk away? Will we leave with the crowd? And as we've seen, there are many understandable reasons why people who are not following Jesus choose to do so. And when we are faced with the moments, the doubts, the traumas, the pain, the whatever it is, that is forcing us to determine whether we will follow Jesus or walk away, how will we respond? Will we leave too? Given everything, why would we stay? We go back to the passage. Jesus turns to the 12 disciples and he asks them, do you want to go away as well? And I think that's a fair and a difficult question at this point. Because the, like, the disciples have just seen 15,000 people, their people, the people who know them, who they know, who they grew up with, who've shared lives with them, hear the words of Jesus and say, nope, I'm good, I'm out, and they leave. How will they respond? I think it would be really fair if the disciples were like, hey, Jesus, we need to take a step back. We need to reevaluate this whole discipleship thing because about a day ago, this was great. There were thousands of people ready to crown you king of Israel and we were gonna go take on Rome and we were gonna march into Rome and make you Caesar and you were gonna sit on his throne and you were gonna make us like not advisors or you know, people like that because you're really smart and we're not, but maybe we could be like people who taste your food. We could be cup bears, right? Uh, but you were gonna bring us into your court. There was a lot of reward for following you, but right now, what's the game? What game do I have in following you? How will they respond? In John 6, 68 and 69, we read, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. God bless Peter, am I right? Sometimes dude like impulsively lops a guy's ear off and sometimes he gives us the most profound and beautiful words that we can hold on to because he like us is incredibly flawed. Peter's response to the Lord is what our response has to be when we are confronted with the things that would cause us to question if we will follow Jesus or not. Lord, to whom shall we go? Where else would we go? What better thing could there be than Jesus? Now, there's a, there's a chance this statement is made in desperation, something akin to Jesus. I've hitched my wagon to you. I have no other option. I left my career behind. I have no money. I have no family. I have no prospects. Uh, I, there is nothing else I could do. So the, this has to work out. Please, Jesus, make this work out. But I don't think it's that simple. Because when we look at the rest of Peter's statement, he says, you have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. These are not the words of someone who has no other option and is just hoping that this whole Jesus thing pans out. This isn't the words of someone who's just like, well, I hope you know, things improve, the tide turns, right? These are the words of someone who knows the Lord and who knows what comes with him, life. 
when we ask ourselves whether we are going to follow Jesus or leave with the crowd, we will only say, Jesus, I am with you, when we can truthfully affirm Peter's statements in this passage. First, when we are faced with the difficulties and temptations of this world, we must recognize that Jesus is the source of eternal life. As we have said, it is so difficult to look at the things happening around us and recognize that they are not as important as our eternal reality, but it is critical for us to do so. We don't like to say this, right? We like to things, you know, have things be pretty and tied up with a bow, but following Jesus will come at a cost and the world around us will continue to be difficult. The cost for following Jesus, it might be financial, it might be health-related. It might be a social cost that people will reject you or don't want to be around you. It might be a comfort cost that God is going to call you to go somewhere that you don't know, that you don't want to be, that you have to leave the things that you know and love. I don't know. I don't know what the cost is. But we know that there will be a cost and that the world around us will continue to throw things at us that are difficult to deal with. But the reward of following Jesus is infinitely and immeasurably greater than any cost here and now. The Apostle Paul would write in Philippians 3.8, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Why? Because the reward of knowing Christ Jesus is eternal life. It is a life now filled with purpose and hope and love and joy in spite of everything that could ever happen. And it is a life forever with God, free from pain, free from death, perfect in joy, perfect in love, never lacking and always satisfied. Jesus is the source of eternal life. And second, we must believe that Jesus is the Holy One of God. When we are faced with the questions and the circumstances and pieces of theology or whatever it might be that would have us doubting our faith and feeling tempted to walk away because sometimes it feels really nice to just say, I, just let me give up. Let me walk away. We must lean on who Jesus is and what he has done. When everything else is in chaos and in movement, our foundation must be in the rock because he is the only thing that is secure. It is Jesus alone who has blessed us with life. Jesus alone who has continually delivered us throughout our lives. Jesus alone who took the weight and punishment of sin on his shoulders when he was crucified. And Jesus alone who conquered the grave three days later in his resurrection to guarantee eternal life with us. Jesus alone is good. Jesus alone saves, delivers, and does the impossible because Jesus alone is the Holy One of God. When everything else is in chaos, when everything else is shaking and moving and you're tempted to walk away when you're doubting and crumbling, Jesus never will because he's unshakable, he's immovable, and he's unstoppable. When we begin, yeah, sure. When we trust and believe that Jesus is who he says he is and that he has done what he has done. We can see the world around us, everything that could ever happen to us with clarity because as Paul writes in Romans 8, 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Nothing. No one can ever stand in the way of Jesus because he unstoppable and nothing could ever move him because he is unshakable. And finally, and arguably most important, we must personally know Jesus for ourselves. Our mission as a church is to help other people to meet, know, and follow Jesus. If you've been around here for a while, you've probably heard that phrase quite a bit. If this is your first Sunday, first of all, welcome. We're so glad you're here. There's a connect card on the back of your seats, probably. I don't know, right? <laughs> but second, you're going to hear this phrase quite a bit. That we, everything we do every Sunday, every men's and women's gathering, every camp, every kids ministry event, everything we do is about helping other people establish a personal relationship with Jesus because it is that which will save us and it is that which will maintain us most when we are pressed. Why do Peter and the other disciples choose to stay when every other follower of Jesus, people, all the people who were following him, it says they were disciples, when all of them walked away and left, why did they stay? Is it because they saw miracles? Maybe. But all of these other people had seen miracles. They were the recipients of miracles. 
Is it because they heard Jesus' teaching? Maybe. But again, all of these people had also heard the words and teachings of Jesus. Why did they stay? And Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That word know doesn't just mean knowing facts. It is an intimate, personal, relational knowledge of who Jesus is. Not only did they see, not only did they hear, but they knew Jesus. They knew what he had done, but more importantly, they knew who he was. And later on in the book of John, we'll read, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. When I talk to the students who come through our ministry, the thing they will hear me say often is that the greatest and most important thing that you could ever do with your life is to know Jesus personally, is to have a saving personal relationship with Jesus because that is what saves you and that is what is going to keep you secure when we are inevitably faced with the trials of life. If you wanna know why people walk away from the faith, it's because they don't know Jesus. If you wanna know why people, when faced with hardships, are crumbling, it's because they don't know Jesus. Because those things will happen. Those things will occur and they are devastating and they are difficult. But knowing Jesus is what keeps us secure. You cannot rely on your parents' faith. You cannot rely on your pastor's faith, not on mine nor on anyone else's, but on your personal relationship and faith in Christ. That is what will save you and that is what will keep you. Only that when you are asked, are you going to leave too, will allow you to say, Jesus, where else would I go? I know you and I love you. If everything that we are building to, everything we are aiming for, everything that will save us, maintain us, and keep us following Jesus is about knowing him for ourselves, how do we do that? How do we go about doing this? Do we just like, like clench our fists, grit our teeth, and will ourselves into deeper knowledge of Jesus? Do we shout to the heavens, Lord, I know you? If we return to the passage over and over again, we see Jesus make statements like, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. And no one can come to me unless it is granted by the father. In fact, in other versions of this miracle, of this story in other gospels, Jesus will respond to Peter something like, hey, I'm so proud of you, Peter. Good on you, mate. But this knowledge that you have of me and the knowledge of that you've attained the wisdom isn't even from you. It's from the Lord. It is not us who earns salvation. It's not us who approaches the Lord first in relationship and it's not us who makes our knowledge of the Lord deeper and sweeter. We love because he first loved us. Our knowledge of the Lord comes from him drawing us to himself and revealing himself to us in personal and wonderful and amazing ways. So where does that leave us? Two things and I'll close out. First, if you are someone who knows the Lord, who, who God has called to himself, who you have called out to in salvation. God has revealed himself into you in sweet and wonderful and powerful ways. Praise God, because that is the greatest thing that could ever happen to you. How sweet it is to look back on our own salvation and say, God, thank you. I didn't do any of this, but you rescued me. You saved me. And we praise him and worship him. And also, seek more after God. Seek after the Lord's presence more so than his blessings. Let us be a people who seek not after the loaves and fishes, but after the one who provides them. Seek him in, his, in, in prayer, in conversation, in, in communication with the Lord. Seek him in his word. Where else would you go to find the Lord except in the words that he's given us? Seek him in community. Surround yourself with people who also know the Lord and who can point you back to him and encourage you with him when you are tried, when you are tested, when you need it most. Seek the Lord in obedience. If you want to know where God is, look to where he's taking you. Look to the next step that he is putting before you. And second, if you are someone who does not know Jesus, if you are someone who the Lord, like if you've never called out to him in salvation, 
I want you to be honest with yourself. This isn't for me nor anyone else here. I want you to be honest. Is that something you want? Do you want to know Jesus? A life with Jesus is the only thing that can provide hope, joy, purpose, love, truth right here and now in spite of everything that's gonna happen. And I I wish I could tell you that, you know, knowing Jesus was a silver bullet to end all pain and suffering here and now. But if you want a way to get through that, if you want purpose in spite of those things and love and joy in spite of those things, only a life with Jesus can provide it. If you want life forevermore with God, with purpose and freedom and, and a life free from pain, if that is something you desire, or even if you just want more knowledge, if you want to understand what we're talking about more, do not leave these doors without talking to someone. Talk to Pastor Brandon, talk to Pastor BJ, talk to Pastor Chad, find someone, find myself, find one of our staff members. If you have a small group, talk to your small group leader, talk to one of our volunteers around the church, talk to someone. Because as I have said, and as I firmly believe, and I hope you hear my heart in this, the greatest and most important thing you could ever do with your life is to know Jesus personally. And so if that is something you want, find someone. Because whenever the things in life arise that cause you to waver, to stumble, to doubt, to hurt, and let's be real, those things will arise. Knowing Jesus is the only thing that will keep you secure. I know that I said I was gonna close out after that, but I figured this was my first time preaching, so it's also my first time to be the pastor who's like, we're gonna close out after this, and then have something else afterwards. Uh, And so, on a Sunday, where we are celebrating our seniors because you know, of what God has done in their lives to bringing them to where they are, on a Sunday where we're talking about refusing to walk away from the Lord, even when it's confusing and it makes no sense. And a Sunday when we're talking about how important it is to stay with Jesus and to follow him because he is better than anything and everything else. We have a student who has said that Jesus is better and wants to declare that with her life to say, Jesus, I am with you. And he wants to publicly declare that today in baptism. So with that, hopefully they're back there. Uh, Yes, sweet, good. Uh, I want to introduce you to some sweet friends of mine. So this is Jaylee. Uh, Jaylee is one of our high school juniors, uh, and she recently gave her life to the Lord. That she called out to him, and so she realized that though she had been with Jesus, she'd been around the church, that she had never truly been with him. Right? She had been around Jesus, but she'd never been with him. And then on our Colorado trip, she realized that she wanted more. And she called out to Jesus to save her, to rescue her, to give her life. And that she wants to declare today in baptism that she is Jesus's and that he is hers. And what is so sweet, yeah, give her a hand, yeah. What is so sweet, I like, I'm like, I told Jaylee, it makes me want to weep, is like, what is so sweet, is it like, like Jaylee is the, she has every reason to walk away from Jesus. She has experienced things in her life that would cause her, that would be very understandable for her to say, I'm good, I'm out. But instead she is choosing to follow Jesus with her life. And she knows that these waters, these aren't what save her, but her relationship, her faith in Jesus, that he died for her, that is what saved her. And, and baptism is her way of saying, I wanna follow Jesus no matter what happens that I'm with him and that he is going to carry me to wherever I need to be. And, and so I'm just so sweet. And this is Becca. Everyone say hi, Becca. So Becca is, you know, on a, you know, a day we're talking about like my youth ministry career as well. Like I've known Becca for years in the youth ministry world. And this is such a sweet moment because Jaylee has asked her Becca to baptize her because she has discipled her and mentored her and walked through some really difficult times with her. And what a sweet, you know, what a sweet picture of Jesus shepherding us that we get to see in this moment. And so I got a couple questions for you real quick. Uh, Jaylee, uh, you know, remember, you got a lot of difficult lines here, right? Uh, is it your public profession of faith that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior? Yes. Good. We got one down, right? Do you believe that Jesus lived, died, and rose in the grave so that you could have life with him? Yes. And is it your choice today to declare to the world that you want to follow Jesus with your life? Yes. 
Awesome. So with that, I'm going to pass it over to Becca real quick. And that y'all can, you know, you don't have to worry about the mic. I'm just going to, I'll be like the boom guy, right? Can you hear me? That's good. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, great. Um, I think my favorite thing about this is that this is such a great example of God using just a broken person to walk with another person. I mean, I'm not a great, I'm not, I'm nothing special. I'm just me. And, um, he still uses us and in our brokenness, we get to claim only him and it's so awesome. Yeah. I'm so honored and so grateful to be able to do this with Jay Lee today. Yeah. Right. Plug your nose. I love, I love being able to celebrate baptism. As I said earlier, it reminds me of my own salvation. I get to be grateful for what the Lord has done in my life. I get to remember what God has done for me. And, and I love being able to celebrate this as a church family. Thank you for letting me share a word with you today. Um, and I simply wanna leave you with the Lord's question for us and Peter's response. And, and I, as I read this, I just wanna encourage you to consider how would you respond to Jesus in this moment? Do you want to go away as well? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for revealing yourself to us in life for giving us ample opportunities to know you, that you through history have made yourself more and more known to your creation, that you did not create and walk away, but you decided decided to create and move further toward your creation, that you brought us life. Jesus, thank you for living and dying and raising from the grave that we could have life with you. And I pray, Spirit, that you would move in the hearts of all of us, that you would move us to worship if we know you, and you would move us to know you, move us to life if we do not. God, you are good, and we're so grateful. And and we pray, Lord, that whenever the things in life would arise that would cause us pain, cause us to struggle, cause us to doubt and to hurt, Lord, be with us. Give us the strength, give us the knowledge of you. Jesus, make yourself known to us so that we could look at those things and say, you are better. Jesus, I am with you. Lord, where else would I go? God, we praise things in your holy and amazing name. Amen.